All right, it's going to be a good night in the Word of God. You excited for it? All right, grab your devices and your Bibles. Let's get those open and ready to go. Praise the Lord. I'm going to do some welcomes here. Pastor Vaco, could you help me just with the, on your way. We ask him to do a lot of things. Thank you, Pastor. And what I'm going to do, just so I can see these lovely people, I'm going to move this too. See, worship team, what we'll do is we'll make a note of this. That way, we can see everybody. Amen. Well, welcome everybody, the King of Kings community here in Jerusalem. We're so happy you're with us, members and visitors alike. I also want to welcome everybody watching online, Kings Community Live, Facebook Live, YouTube, other platforms around the world. We're so grateful you've joined us. We have uh, so many more uh, meaningful things happening tonight as well. We're going to go back into a time of worship shortly. The team's going to come and rejoin us. We're also going to take the elements of the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. So begin to prepare your heart, begin to think about that. And if you're joining us online, let this just serve as a, as a reminder to go ahead and get your elements ready so you can take them with us, the Seudad Hadon, in just a, a few minutes. You know, I say things like, um, you know, Finland and Slovakia and Austria, Singapore, Malaysia, France, Germany, and you're like, wow, you're saying all the World Cup uh, countries, Pastor Chad. No, those are the people watching online tonight. That's where they're watching from. Hopefully, they're watching and taking a break from World Cup. Amen? Uh, if your team is doing well in the World Cup, raise your hand. Are you in the final 16? Anybody in the final 16? Yeah. If your team lost, go ahead and raise your hand. Just admit it. It's okay. We're going to start with prayer. Father, I pray for these people tonight. Just heal their hearts, Lord, from disappointment. Father, we pray for anger, you know, bitterness and unforgiveness. Yes. <laughs> Listen, let me also just say a, a mazal tov and a congratulations. One of our congregation's families in the King of Kings Network, uh, one of the congregations in Tel Aviv is called Adonai Roi, and uh, Pastor Nate Silverman leads that congregation, but the founder of the congregation is Avi Mizrahi. And Avi Mizrahi tonight, right now, is having his uh, wedding, is having the wedding for his daughter, Orel and Arik. So Orel and Arik are getting married. So a lot of our people, uh, or some of our people are there celebrating with them. Let me just give a public blessing to you, uh, Pastor Avi. We bless you and Chaya and the whole family on your wedding tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we are. This is our main text. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Why don't you turn there? And I'm just going to kind of give you a, a little prophetic sense tonight. Thank you, Liz, for such a sharp word tonight. We're so glad you had the courage to bring that forward. We want to continue to foster the gifts of the Spirit. Now, one of the great ways to do that is not only here in the corporate dynamic, but it's also in our community groups, in our small groups, where we get to practice speaking what the Lord is sharing with us, what is the Lord putting on our heart. We want to move in those gifts, and a great way to practice that in a, in a very low-risk environment is in our small groups or in our discipleship classes. Uh, come and join us for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, this week I was reading, and uh, so I see, you know, we all have different glasses. Anybody wear glasses or contacts in the room? Can you just let me know we're in the same group tonight, right? A lot of us, most of us, it looks like most of us. Okay, so... Some of us can see like really close up and then you need glasses to see far away, right? Is that you? Raise your hands. If you can see close up but not far away, raise your hand. Okay, yeah, look, we're on the same team. That's good. 
Uh, what about the other way? What if you, you can see far, but you can't see right in front of you? We got any of those strange people in the house? Yeah, that's me. That's, that's the group I'm actually in that group. So I'm reading the Bible this week, and it's hilarious because my kids want to bring and show me stuff. Daddy, take a look at this. And of course, they're going to put it right in front of my face, and I can't see close up. So they put it up here, and it all just looks like a big blob right in front of me. And I start guessing what it looks like. I'm like, that's a beautiful dog. They're like, Dad, that's a giraffe. That's not a dog. And I'm like, that's my fault. That's my fault. Give me my glasses. So I, I can't see close, but I can see really far. And so I'm reading the Word this week, and I have my reading glasses on, and all of a sudden, I can't even see it with the glasses on. And I was like, I rebuke that in the name of Yeshua right now, whatever's going on with my eyes. But I, I, I realized that I'm going to need a stronger pair of glasses. Anybody ever been in that boat? Yeah? All right. Come on. You're, in your, you're a little bit older with me? Okay. So you needed a stronger pair. You thought you were good with the first pair, but now you need a stronger pair. And right there, the Holy Spirit said, pay attention. It said, you're in a day and an age where you're going to need a stronger pair of glasses than you're used to. The glasses that used to work for you are not going to work anymore. The tools you used to use to get by with and to comfort yourself with, those are not going to work anymore in the age that's ahead of you. You better learn to fast and pray in a different way. You better be more intentional. You better be more deliberate in your, in your devotion time with me in my presence. You're going to need my presence more than you've ever needed my presence before to make it through this, this next phase. So, Father, we receive that word as a congregation tonight. We pour that out over, over myself, over all of us, that we would be conscious of what you're doing, that we would be aware, that we would be sensitive to what you're doing, and that even though the things that we might have used before and the tools were good and they were fitting for the moment, we're looking for the new wineskin now. What is it that you're doing that's new, and what new tool do we need today? What do we need to see today that we haven't been able to see before? Guide us in that, in the name of Yeshua, and open your word to us. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Our series is called We Are the Temple. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20, the key verses for this series. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In the first week of this series, we talked about the temple layout. We talked about the history of the tabernacle in the desert. We talked about the first temple, the second temple. Then we talked about the heavenly temple. We even touched on the fact that it appears from the text that there's going to be a third temple on this earth before heaven and earth passes away. On week number two, we looked at the Ark of the Covenant. If you missed any of these series, Go back onto our archives, kkcj.org, click archive, and you'll find all of the sermons to catch up on. Week number two, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant, all of its meanings. What did it stand for? The presence of God was there, the poles, the gold, and everything that was involved, the tablets of stone, the manna, Aaron's rod, all of the things that were there. But we didn't just want to explore these elements inside the tabernacle and temple and then the articles themselves as if we just wanted a history lesson. This is not an archaeological lesson. We want to know if we are the temple, then what do we have to do with these things? God doesn't do random. He doesn't do accidents. So when he says, you're the temple, 
It behooves us to understand all of the elements and what they mean. How are we supposed to display God's attributes to the world if we don't know what he's talking about? Week number three, last week we talked about the menorah, the seven branches of the menorah along with the almond branch design, what it all means, the resurrection, the first tree that blossoms in Israel every spring. All of that is tied into the perfection and the completion of the number seven involved in the seven-branch menorah. Tonight, we're going to continue in this series. We're going to be discussing the altar in the temple, the altar of the Lord. Now, as we begin, quick Hebrew lesson. The word altar, mizbeach, this word is, is the physical part. It's the physical altar, mizbeach, and it comes really from the word zavach. The word zavach means to sacrifice something or to kill an animal or to slay something. So they're obviously related in the shoresh. Those of you that are Hebrew students with us in Israel, you understand when I say the word shoresh, I mean the root of the word. From mizbeach, you can hear zavach, it's in there. You can hear it built in to the core of, of the word. Interestingly enough, the first instance in the Bible, in the original Hebrew of the term mizbeach, is found in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, and it has to do with Noah when he comes out of the ark. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it, on the altar that he made. Interesting, doesn't necessarily say he was commanded to make that altar. He decided to make the altar. That's the first reference to the altar or an altar, maybe not the altar, but an altar in the Bible. The second reference is equally as important, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, and it has to do with Abraham. Even before he was called Abraham, he was called Avram, Abram. And in Genesis 12, 7, it says, the Lord appeared to Avram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. That's where you are tonight. Welcome. Welcome. And it says, so Avram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Again, on his own initiative. He wasn't commanded to do that. It was on his own initiative that he built this Mizbeach, the altar. As you continue forward in the Torah, you're also going to see that people like Isaac and Jacob and Moses, they all are recorded as making altars to the Lord out of their own initiative, out of their own love for God. As we continue forward, now we're past the Torah, we're in the, the, the Ketuvim, the writings, you're going to find that King Saul and King David both decided to make altars. Now you might say, well, why did you want to separate those guys from the earlier list? Because the earlier list of guys, right, you're talking about Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, they all decided to make the altar before the actual altar had been commanded, but Saul and David chose to do it and make their own altar after the actual altar had already been commanded and already built. Interesting history there about who chose what, when, and why. But they chose to make an altar after the main altar had already been activated. So here's an appropriate question that we hope to answer tonight on our journey through the scriptures. If we already had the possibility of making an altar and sacrificing to the Lord 
Before the tabernacle was commanded to be built, then why did we need the altar in the tabernacle and temple anyway? I think that's a fair question. Tonight after the service, those of you that are watching from abroad, watching online, at 7 o'clock we have our King's Highway community group. Tonight's the online group, and Joanna is going to be leading that. That's a great question. Maybe you guys can dive into that question online tonight as well. So as we learn a little bit more about the altar, I've given you some history, but there are other types of altars. Listen, listen to a little bit more history here on the types of altars. Back in Genesis chapter 3, we're told that Adam and Eve sinned against God by disobeying him. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then it says that God made skins for them from animals that were sacrificed. Interestingly, there's no mention of an altar at that point. It doesn't say anything about an altar. It just says that God made the sacrifice for them and gave them the skins. No altar. Then in Genesis chapter 4, these are Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. You know the brothers. Cain and Abel both brought offerings to the Lord, but still an altar is not mentioned. The word that's mentioned here is mincha, for offering. It means a gift or a tribute, but no altar is being mentioned. As a matter of fact, this word mincha, I'm just giving you a little Hebrew update and lesson, it's one of the words that we use for the three daily prayer times. Right? In the morning time, the very early morning time, you have the shachrit. And then at the noon hour, you're going to have the mincha, the offering to the Lord. And then as the sun, before the sun sets, you're, you're going to have the ma'ariv. That's the final one of the day. The shachrit, the mincha, and the ma'ariv. And this is the same word, the mincha, meaning giving a gift or a tribute. Now, of course, we, we know our Bible and we know if we continue on, we learn that there are other altars that are discussed in the Bible, not just the one in the temple. For instance, Exodus chapter 20, verse 24. It says, make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. Hopefully you caught that. That was a commanded altar, but it still wasn't the altar. It was an altar made of earth. And the tabernacle isn't there yet. So this is apparently still in the time of the tent of meeting, but not the tabernacle tent of meeting, the other tent of meeting that predated it. And you're dealing with the uh, uh, prescription to make a mounded earth-type altar. So we have an earth altar. But then the very next verse gives even a different kind of altar with instructions. Verse 25 of Exodus 20. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. So God is giving a prescription that you can make an earth altar, or you, you can make a stone altar. And all of this is before the big altar, the tabernacle altar, has even been built yet. Isn't that amazing? So I'm wondering if the early patriarchs and matriarchs were making these kind of altars already, which is why God received the offering. Remember, God has great detail in his instructions. We also remember that when Cain and Abel sacrificed, remember Abel, God received it. In Cain, he did not. And we already had the oral tradition. We already had the laws of God passed down, even from God to Adam and Adam to his children. 
And I'm wondering in my mind, is, is, is it because Cain did not do it according to these, to these two prescriptions, or maybe his heart was in the wrong place, or maybe he didn't bring the right offering? I'm not sure, but what it does tell us is if, that God already had prescriptions for how to make an altar, even before he had the prescription of how to make the altar. We, we approach God on his terms. That's an important lesson for us tonight. That doesn't mean he's not approachable. He's very approachable. But we approach him on his terms. What does that mean? With humility, with an open heart that submitting to him, he's in charge, not us. And so we continue to learn a little bit more. Let's also differentiate for a moment between the altar, this is the altar of burnt offering, versus the altar of incense. Okay, we're gonna have two different types of little altars when we, when we start to show you these things. And one of them is the burnt offering altar and one is the altar of incense. Those are two different things. Tonight we're discussing the burnt offering altar. Moses also chooses to build his own altar, again, before the real altar. Listen to what it says in Exodus 24, verse four. This is after Moses goes on the mountain. He spends time with God. He gets all of the commandments. He's been in the presence of God. And it says, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses built his own altar as well. So these first three types of altars that I've mentioned were part of the Israelite life in the desert before the tabernacle was commanded to be built. But once the tabernacle is built, now we have the prescription for the real altar of burnt offering. And the question arises, why did we need it? And then at times, why did other people keep making their own altar if you have one? That's a fun study. It's a fun journey. So let's learn a little bit more about this official altar now. Let's turn our attention from the history before and let's look at the commandments of the official altar there in the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 27, that's our text. We're gonna read a, a paragraph there, Exodus 27. First verse. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the ring so that they will be on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. What it means is Moses saw it. He saw the real one and he had to make a copy of it. Throughout this series, we brought your attention to the fact that everything we're gonna see on earth in the tabernacle, the temple, the articles, Moses had seen in heaven or on the mountain. He, he saw it somewhere. 
and he was copying what he saw. Notice also that this particular altar is made of acacia wood, just like the ark was. What does it mean? It means that acacia wood was apparently readily available in the desert. That's what it means. It means that God would not expect you to be able to do something unless he provided you with the resources to do that thing. You see what I did there? I went from like a history lesson, and then I went right to your heart. Did you see that little shift right there? That's, that's a great technique when you're sharing the word. God is going to expect, it's both sides of the coin. He will not expect you to do something that he didn't equip you for, and he will expect you to do something that he did equip you for. So there's really no way out of it, right? It reminds me of the book of Matthew, chapter 5 and 18. Chapter 5 talks about if you think somebody has an offense against you, go talk to them. And chapter 18 says if, if you have offended a brother, go talk to him. Or if they've offended you, go talk to them. It doesn't matter. You don't get out of this one. There's no way out. If you offended them or they offended you, you got to go talk to them. It's the same thing here. If God gives you the resources, you got to use them. And he's not going to ask you to do something that he doesn't give you the resources for. And I think that's one of the first lessons we learn here looking at these articles is that it was made out of acacia wood. See, I love when the word of God is alive and it's fresh and the Holy Spirit is flowing and you read something like, make it out of acacia wood, and all of a sudden it becomes a life lesson from the heart of God. Isn't that amazing? It's not just words. Don't read it fast. Haven't I said that like every week now? Don't read it fast. Read it slowly. Give the Holy Spirit time to touch you and intervene what you're doing. I'll also bring your attention to the fact that the altar was not covered in gold, like the ark. It was covered in bronze. Why? Because it has a different function. God is identifying the function, making sure that the, the metal work is different so you would understand that they function differently. They have a different reason and meaning. And we, as the people of God, need to understand what these meanings are so that we can live them out because we are the temple of God. Also, all of the utensils. If you've ever wondered, I wonder if God cares about the little things. He very much cares about the little things. Did you, did you read the text with me? Hey, hey, make a scooper. You imagine God of all the universe, and Moses is writing it down. Go ahead, God, with the next piece. God... Right, an altar. Got the altar. Okay, made of bronze. That's right. Good. I got that. Horns, four horns. Got it. Scooper. Did you say scooper? Yeah, like a little shovel. Okay, I know what that is. Okay, a little shovel. And then, and then make little grates on it. Grates on it. Yeah. Write that down. I got it. Writing that down. And then a bucket. Get a bucket because you're gonna need to put the ash. How detailed is God? And then make poles. Make poles. Then make rings. Put the rings on the side. You can just see Moses is like drawing a sketch. No, 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 that's, that's too high. Put them halfway up. Really? That specific? Yeah, that specific. Put the rings halfway up. Not all the way up, halfway up. Guys, listen. 
God cares about the details of your life. He does. He cares about your marriage. He cares about your parenting. He cares about your work. He cares about your finances. He cares about your areas of service. He cares about your devotion life. He cares about your health and your physical ailments. He he cares that you grow spiritually. Why? Because he knows why he created you. You were created to rule and reign with the Messiah over his creation. And he cares about the little stuff so that you'll get it right, so that you'll be prepared to rule and reign over everything he gives you. So yes, he does. At times, he cares about the little stuff. And that was a word for somebody who feels like God is distant from them. God, I'm too small. God doesn't care about me. Yes, he does. Listen, if God cared how high on the altar to put the bronze ring, I promise you he cares about your life. He cares about your life and all of its little parts. There were horns on the four corners. There were rings. There were poles similar to the ark. There was one way to carry it. You didn't touch it. You had to pick it up by the poles. You understand it's very sacred to God. I think we have a photo of the altar. Do we have some of the photos? We got a couple. There you go. There's just a little rendering right there. You see the poles. You see the rings, the grate, the horns. It's made of bronze. And let's look at the map where it goes inside the tabernacle, just so we're all very clear on where inside it goes. Again, this is a layout of the original tabernacle. This is not the temple, per se. Outside in the outer court, you have, there's the altar of burnt offering there. That's where the thing is we're talking about tonight. Next week, the bronze laver. Pastor Wayne will be talking about the bronze laver. Then you go inside the holy place. We talked about the menorah. We have not yet talked about the showbread, the altar of incense, You go in further to the Holy of Holies, we talked about the ark. So this is one that's on the outside. You say, why is that so important that it's on the outside? Because it's in the outer court. Why does it need to be in the outer court? Because everybody can see you. Like, oh, I didn't. I I was digging the altar until it was in public. That means, friends, when you brought the bull or the lamb or the ram for your sin, Come on, little lamb, come on. You're pulling it, and it didn't want to go, and you're like, come on. Nothing bad's going to happen until five minutes from now. Everybody saw what you were bringing. Everybody saw what you were doing. There was a sense, follow me, there was a sense of corporate repentance. Everything wasn't done just privately. And we've made some errors in today's body life that we've made everything so private that no one's allowed to get in your life, but that's not the real body. The real body is that we do some things we interact in publicly. If you sin against the congregation, you confess to the congregation. If you've sinned against another brother or sister, you confess to that brother or sister. There is an openness. There is a public peace of kingdom life. And in today's modern world of the body of Messiah around the world, we've made it so individual. It's like, you know, everybody bow your head, close your eyes, total privacy, you know, with the smallest little flicker of your finger. Can you tell me if you accepted Yeshua tonight or not? Just make sure no one sees you. Just give me a little finger, something real small. No, 
No. Sometimes it's a public thing. If you confess me before men, right? If you're not ashamed of me, there's a public confession. And that's what having the altar out in public did. It gave us a chance to have a public confession. Not to just pretend we're living this private, closed off, quiet closet in the dark life. It's not good for a man to be alone. We were never meant or built that way. Now, we understand the basic functions of the altar was to sacrifice animals to the Lord. We understand that. There's lots of kinds of sacrifices. In general, the term for that is the korbanot. It's, the, it's all of the sacrifices together. For instance, you have the burnt offering sacrifice called the olah, meaning it goes up. You have the sin offering, the chetat, from the word chet, the sin, the word for sin. You have the guilt offering, asham. This is the word for guilt. We have this in our prayer books on Yom Kippur called the Ashamnu, the prayer of our guilt. We have the peace offering, the Shalamim. This comes from the root word of Shalom. It's the same word. It's a peace offering. But that's not all. We have the fellowship offering, the wine, the water, the holiday sacrifices, the firstborn uh, offerings to the Lord. Don't offer the firstborn. You give a gift to the Lord for your firstborn. The free will offerings and many more. There are also different types of animals that are brought the bulls, the oxen, the heifer, the goat, the sheep, the ram, the dove, the pigeon. And there are many more that are explained in the text. Go through, read them slowly. But here's an interesting feature. When King Solomon was allowed to build the first temple, this is after the tabernacle, he's allowed to build the first temple. One thing that's interesting is that he keeps the Ark of the Covenant, but he builds a new altar. I thought that was so interesting that he didn't just carry the altar from the tabernacle to the temple. He built a new one. Look what it says in 2 Chronicles 4, verse 1. It says, Solomon made a bronze altar 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 10 cubits high. It's like four times as large as the first one. I found that interesting that somehow he felt that it was okay or got permission to build what we're now gonna call the second altar, right? Because the tabernacle had the first altar, and Solomon built a different one. Let's call that the second altar. But also the temple was much larger than the tabernacle. So we're putting all of these things into the soup. We're giving you a backdrop. We're giving you some meaning and some understanding. And I want to look at the purpose of the altar and the sacrifice. There was a, a great rabbi and teacher and scholar in the 1200s. His name was Nachmanides. And this is what he wrote. The sacrificial service was not primarily about the physical act of slaughtering an animal. It was principally a spiritual service. On a basic level, if the sacrifice was being brought to atone for some inadvertent sin, then one had to feel remorse over what had happened or what you had done. To assist in teaching true repentance, he would bear in mind that what was being done to the animal essentially should have happened to him. Now, that seems like a very wise saying from a great rabbi, but he didn't make that up. He actually was taking that quote from Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, where it reads, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. So, we find that in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, this is exactly what is prophesied about Yeshua. Verse 6 we all like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just like on the burnt altar, you had to lay your hands on that animal and transfer the sin, so the Father would lay his hands on Yeshua, and all things from the world would be transferred to him. The weight of the world, the sin of the world, everything would be transferred to Yeshua. That's what it says. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John also prophesies clearly about Yeshua performing this for us. John 1.29 says, the next day John saw Yeshua coming toward him and said later, uh, he said, look, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. So John saw him and recognized that his act, not only as high priest, but also as sacrifice, was the transaction that was supposed to happen on the altar. John saw it, just like Isaiah saw it, just as they saw it in Leviticus. And we can go further with this. The apostles make a direct connection to Yeshua and the sacrifices. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 for what I have received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Yeshua died for our sins according to the scriptures. And again in 1 John 3, 5, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. So let's go back to our very original question tonight. What was the altar needed for if we already had a history of sacrificing to the Lord in other ways? Well, as you read through the text, you're going to understand that most times, maybe not every time, but most times, when someone decides on their own initiative to make an altar, when they are the initiator, typically, it serves as a memorial for something that God has done for them. It serves as a time that God intersected their life and did a miracle or he met with them or he spoke with them or his presence was there and they make a memorial type of an offering on this makeshift altar. But they initiated it because they're reminding themselves of something that God did for them. It's a little bit different than the brazen altar. That's a word you're gonna hear sometimes, the brazen altar, the altar made of bronze. Because that altar was for the purpose of reuniting us with God himself. See, that's very different. The purpose is very different. If God visits me and gives me a covenant, gives me a blessing, I make an altar to say thank you. Or if God does a great miracle for my life, I make an altar and I, I offer the sacrifice and I say thank you. But the burnt offering on this particular altar is so that we might reunite ourselves with God. Do you understand the difference? The difference is there was something in the way there was a barrier of some sort, but this altar is the one that takes away the barrier. It's different than just kind of initiating it on your own out of Thanksgiving, which is also good. But this altar removes the barrier. As a matter of fact, it was so important that when the exiles returned from Babylon, do you remember that the very first thing they agreed to build was the altar? They needed the altar first. You say, well, what about they could have set up a tabernacle. They could have started immediately building the temple. They could have gone with something a little bit further in the Holy of Holies. Maybe they could have recreated an ark or the altar of incense or a menorah. No, no. They understood that the first thing they needed to do, the most important thing they could do upon returning from exile was to build the altar because it was the altar that removed the barrier between them and God. 
That was what they had longed for, for there to be no separation between themselves and God. And before they went any further about making any of the other articles or learning more about the scriptures or anything else they wanted to do in ceremony, they wanted the altar first so that they could reunite themselves with God. Great choice. This passage shows up in Ezra chapter three, verse one through three. It says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and the fellow priest of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Remember, I gave you a little Easter egg earlier, right? The shachrit, the mincha, the ma'ariv. That's what they did. They connected with those daily sacrifices. But... This is altar number three. Remember, Moses built one like he saw in the tabernacle. Solomon built a bigger one, four times as big. That one's gone. That one's lost. That one's destroyed. And now Joshua, Zerubbabel, and Ezra, and Nehemiah, and the group, they all get together in Jerusalem on the God-appointed festivals, by the way. What is it? The first day of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets, they build a new altar to the Lord. It's the first thing they decided to do build an altar to the Lord. Let me give you our key phrase of the night. Understanding the purpose of the altar is to understand how we enter into a relationship with God without a barrier of sin between us. This is why the first returners built the altar first. Because once the barrier or separation is removed, we can approach God for everything else. We can approach him for forgiveness, wisdom, healing, guidance, instructions, power, and more. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear you. You see, our people understood this. They understood that sin was separating them and they knew to run to that altar. Yes, it was public. Yes, people would know. Yes, they would know that you sinned and you failed and you needed cleansing. Yes, they would know, but you would be reunited with God without a barrier between you. And that was more important than being embarrassed. Iniquity separates us from God. Yeshua's work removes this barrier so that we can approach the Father. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in the Messiah, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Yeshua and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And at that point, using the altar as a symbol of removing barriers God goes on a consistent quest of removing other barriers. First, he removes the barrier between himself and us. He tears down the curtain in the Holy of Holies so that you would get the picture of this. When Yeshua died, it was torn from top to bottom. Remember the specifics of God. He tore it from the top, a 40-foot high curtain, because no one could blame anyone else for tearing it. It's too high. 
The finger of God did it. Just like the hand of God would open and close the ark door. He wanted you to know he was involved. He removed the barrier. Then he removes the barrier for kingdom citizenship for us. We were once far off and we were separated from his people, but Yeshua's work allowed us to come into his kingdom and be a citizen of the kingdom of God. He removed that barrier. Then he goes further. You were once not part of the priesthood because you weren't born into a Jewish family. But when you accepted the blood of Yeshua for your salvation, you were called a royal priesthood and a holy nation. You were brought into the priesthood. He removed the barrier, not only of citizenship, but of priestliness. He removed that for you. He removed the barrier between Jew and Gentile so they could work together as one new man, as both engrafted into the olive tree once again. Yeshua tears down the barriers of value between men and women. Somebody needs to start preaching that a little bit more around the world in a day and age where we almost want to become so arrogant that we've pushed the value of women so far, almost like we did it. We didn't do that. Yeshua's the first one that did that. It came from him that he broke down the barrier of value distinction. Then he breaks down the distinction of value. I don't mean, of course you have different roles, but the value distinction where everyone is valued, everyone is elevated, Yeshua did that by the work at the altar because it removed the barriers. Yeshua elevated children, slaves, foreigners, the sick, the elderly. No one in history has ever broken down more barriers and elevated more people's value than Yeshua did. That needs to be talked about. Here's another important point. We should remember and understand that Yeshua's death on the execution stake was outside of the city of Jerusalem. Why is that important? Hear me out. Hear me out on this. In case you got the wrong idea that Yeshua was sacrificed on the altar itself in the temple, he wasn't. That temple had been corrupted. The high priesthood had been corrupted. It wouldn't have worked that way. He was executed outside of the city. And because he was executed outside of the city and not on the altar in the temple, there had to be another step. There had to be another thing. There had to be the fullness of the sacrifice. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 9, we read this. But when the Messiah came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Yeshua, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness 
from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And for this reason, Yeshua is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant, verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the earthly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Yeshua did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. He did not die on the burnt offering altar in the temple in Jerusalem. He died on an execution stake outside the city. But he went to heaven, to the heavenly tabernacle. It says the greater and more perfect tabernacle. And there he died for the perfect sacrifice. Perfect high priest, perfect tabernacle, perfect sacrifice once and for all time. That's the work of the altar. And remember, Moses was only making it a copy of the one he saw. The real altar that Yeshua interacted with was in the heavenly places. The greatest work that he ever did for us was in that heavenly tabernacle. And it's lasting us for all time. And it was that death that removed the final barrier. It's our last verse of tonight. Our serving team can come on and make your way down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Messiah all will be made alive. For each in turn, Yeshua the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, and after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed and defeated is death. Death is the last barrier. The work in the heavenly altar, the heavenly tabernacle that Yeshua did for us, removes all of these barriers. First, it was the presence of God barrier. Then it was the sin barrier. Then it was the barrier to one another. Then it was the barrier between men and women and children and slaves and foreigners and the sick and the elderly. Then it was the barrier to citizenship of the kingdom. And then it was a barrier to the priesthood of the kingdom. All of those barriers have been removed until the last one. And finally, he removed death. Death is no longer a barrier to you. If you're in the crowd tonight and you don't have a sense of confidence of what happens after this body passes away, then we want to introduce you to this God, the God who made everything, the God who saves everything, the God who removed the barrier of death for you. We want to remind you of who this is. Come and talk to one of our leaders and our team leaders tonight. We have prayer in just a few minutes right in the lobby. Our Deeper Connections prayer team is going to be waiting up there. Go find one of them. Have a moment and ask some questions. Team, let's go ahead and begin to serve if we haven't already. And as they're serving, I'm going to 
just make a few applicable points and then we're going to worship while the elements come around. So what is the application today? Well, we are the temple of God. So we are called to connect with the altar of burnt offering somehow. The altar represents Yeshua's work and taking down barriers between us and God and many things. We can follow this example and be bridge builders. Help others understand how they can approach God in a new relationship. There are so many more important points about the altar. Obviously, we couldn't cover all of them tonight. We touched on a few, both public and private activities of repentance and cleansing, having a genuine heart when you repent. And finally, one thing that often gets overlooked because you don't find a lot of scriptures about it, but you do see references historically and in the Bible, is that when your heart was right, God would burn up the sacrifice right in front of you. And that's how you would know that he accepted your repentance. If, however, you went to the altar and you offered a sacrifice with the wrong heart, the offering was not accepted. We see this in the story of Cain and Abel. It wasn't accepted. We see this with Elijah, right? With the prophets of Baal, that the sacrifice was burned up when it was right, when the heart was right. So that means there would have been times, there would have been people who brought it out of an act of obligation, but their heart did not want to repent. And that sacrifice is not received from God. Tonight, we're going to take these elements. We want to get our heart right that he might receive our sacrifice tonight. So let's just take a few minutes. Melissa and the team are going to lead us in worship. Have a few minutes to look inward. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. We'll be back in just a minute. 